All right, good morning again. Hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we are. Last week we looked at a text uh, that I described like a thicket full of rabbits, each one of them waiting to dart out and lead us on a chase. And chasing rabbits like that is fun. Uh, Chasing rabbits like that can be useful, but you have to be careful not to get led away from the point the author is making. So last week we tried to stay on track so that Pastor Peter's words were helpful to us like they were helpful to his original audience. We saw that in chapter 10, we have an introduction to the reasons that the false teachers are kept under punishment for the day of judgment, namely, that they indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and that they despise authority. Those were the two areas, right? They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and they despise authority. And then in verse 10 through 13, Peter gave more detail on this arrogance This extreme arrogance of the false teachers in their despising of authority. And then in verse 13 to 16, he gave us more detail about their sensuality, about how they indulge in the flesh, particularly in lust and greed. And all of this, all of this speaks of the danger of these false teachers to Peter's audience. Like he's warning them, he's warning them about the danger these false teachers pose to them and... It speaks to the condemnation that they will experience. It gives the basis of the condemnation that they will experience, the false teachers and those who follow them. So we don't want to be those who follow them, right? We don't want to be like them. So for application last week, I said, if we don't want to follow them, if we don't want to be like them, first of all, we need to be humble. Not arrogant, not boastful, but humble. We need to submit ourselves to authority, particularly submit ourselves to God's authority, particularly submit ourselves to God's authority in his word, right? We need to be quiet. Part of humility is being quiet, being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry, as we saw in James chapter 1. Part of being humble is being teachable, being like the Bereans who are glad to receive the word, right? Glad to receive a message, but then they examine the scriptures to see if it was so. We want to be teachable and moldable in our humility, And I told you that one of the best ways to remain humble is to remember who you are and remember what you deserve and rejoice in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Like that is one of the best ways to stay humble is to recognize that what we deserve from the Lord is only wrath, judgment, and condemnation for eternity. And yet he has given us adoption into his family. He's given us the forgiveness of sins. He's given us eternity with him. And so we walk not with a strut, uh, but with a limp in recognizing that we are totally dependent upon him. We be humble. Number two, be holy. That whole, you will know them by their fruits, as Jesus said, that swings both ways. You'll know the false teachers by their bad fruit, and you will know true disciples by their good fruit, by their love for God, by their love for their neighbor, particularly their brothers and sisters in Christ. You will know them by their hatred of sin, by their true confession and real repentance from sin. Be holy. Be humble. Be holy. And thirdly, be stable. I want to remind you about this quote from John Piper because it's helpful for today as well. Piper said, this is a strong admonition. First, to establish our own doctrinal stability in the word, but then also to labor seriously to ground our children and all new converts quickly in the truth of scripture. Let's be a church where we are constantly helping each other to send our roots ever deeper into the rock of God's truth. We want to, we want to do that. We don't want to be unstable. We don't want to be those who are unstable and enticed away by the false teachers. So that's part of why we do expositional preaching here so that you are grounded in the word. That's part of why we constantly are advocating for personal spiritual disciplines, namely scripture intake, that that you are taking God's word on the regular. 
that you're reading it daily, that you're meditating on it, memorizing it, filling your heart up with God's word so that you are rooted, grounded, and not led astray easily uh, by the false teachers. Well, this week we come to a text that is really closely connected with last week. You may remember that last week I talked about the structure how the structure of the text helps us understand the meaning of the text. And we can continue on with that this week. What I want you to know is that Pastor Peter is building a solid argument against the false teachers as a warning to his audience not to follow their ways. Like, in a lot of ways, I would love to preach all of 2 Peter chapter 2 in one shot. Like, I would love to take all of 2 Peter 2 and preach it in one big sermon. And if we did that, one of two things would happen. Either we would be here for days... Uh, all together for days looking at it, or we would fail to do justice to the little parts of it. And I don't want to do either of those things. So when faced with preaching more verses or less verses, I almost always choose less verses, right? We're going to almost always say, let's look at less text so we can look at it more closely. But as we do that, as we push our noses close to the book today, don't forget to zoom out every once in a while and, and, and recognize and appreciate the bigger argument that Peter is making as he warns his audience about these false teachers. As he warns them that if they follow them, if they go that direction, they will go to destruction along with the false teachers. And he wants to keep them from that. Today, Pastor Peter seems particularly focused on how dangerous these false teachers are to his audience. And how careful they need to be not to get swept up by their empty promises. And boy, do the false teachers make some promises. Boy, do they, they promise a lot of things that they cannot deliver on. So let's check it out in the text. 2 Peter chapter 2. Today we're going to look at verses 17 to 19. Next week, we'll pick up in verse 20. God's word says, these, it's a reference to the false teachers, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, help us today to see how empty and futile the pleasures of this world are. Remind us that sin makes promises that it can never deliver. Remind us that the wide and easy road leads to death and destruction. Help us to see that you alone satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Remind us of the truth of Psalm 116 that says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Remind us of that today and keep us on the narrow road that leads to life by your grace and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a lot for us to see in these short verses, so look at verse 17. It says, These are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. So in this verse, Pastor Peter uses two illustrations to describe the false teachers. And both of these illustrations would have been easily understood, easily understood and quite powerful for his original audience. Because the people to whom he is writing lived in a dry and arid climate where water is essential to life, and it is sometimes hard to find. And so he's going to take these two images that have to do with water to describe the false teachers. Both of these illustrations play on the promise of life-giving, satisfying, refreshing water, but the failure to deliver. 
which brings about not just disappointment, right? The failure to deliver water doesn't just bring about disappointment. It brings about death eventually, right? It ultimately brings about death. So look what he says. He says, these are springs without water. Imagine being on a trip in the first century and coming to a place that is known to have water. Right, A spring that is known to be producing water on the regular. A place where people who travel by always stop to get a drink. And you have to have a drink in order to keep going. You cannot keep going without water. Imagine getting to that place that is known to have water, but finding it dry. Finding it completely dry. What a roller coaster that would be, right? What a roller coaster of emotion that would be as you're traveling on the road and you get close to the place that you think is going to have water and you start to dream about how good that water is going to be and how it's going to revive you and keep you going on the trip. And then you get to that place and there's no water there. What a disappointment. What a disappointment. And as I was thinking about this, all I could think about is what would seem to be a similar disappointment in my kids' experience when they finally convince us to go to McDonald's to get an ice cream cone only to find that, yet again, the machine is broken. Right? Now, that is a small potatoes comparison. The false teachers are far worse than that. They promise life-giving water, but they don't deliver. And that doesn't just bring about disappointment and frustration. It brings about death. It leads to death. That's what Peter is illustrating for his audience. Contrast that whole concept with the conversation that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman at the well, which we just studied a couple weeks ago in small group Bible study. In John chapter 4, look at this. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drink of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's Jesus, right? And when he says something like that, he delivers on it. The false teachers are like waterless wells, places that claim to have water, that maybe advertise that they have water, but provide no water. Jesus, on the other hand, gives living water. In fact, creates in you a well that springs up to eternal life. When Jesus says things like that, you can trust him. The false teachers, you can't. They cannot provide what they are promising. The second illustration he uses is mists driven by a storm. There's a little bit of disagreement among scholars about what exactly this means, but it seems the best way to understand it is as a rain cloud that's on the horizon a rain cloud that's on the horizon that carries with it the hope of life-giving and crop-growing rain. But before it can make it to you to rain on your land, it gets blown in the other direction by a storm and you get no rain. Now, if you lived in a dry land and if you depended on crops for your livelihood, this would indeed be a provocative image, right? That's the way the false teachers are. They're like a cloud that pops up on the horizon, and you think, oh, yeah, here comes life. But before it gets to you, it gets blown away by a strong wind and provides you no rain. So essentially, 
Essentially, it's the same as the previous image. Things that are repeated in the Bible are repeated for the sake of emphasis. And it seems like Peter doubles up basically the same image to speak of the disappointment and the death that the false teachers bring, even though they promise life. And look what he says next. He says, they are like wells without water, like mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness is reserved. Now, this black darkness is reserved not for clouds, but rather for the ones to whom the clouds are referring. In other words, the false teachers are the ones for whom the black darkness is reserved. And this is not new to us. Peter, Peter's been saying this all of chapter 2, right? He's been saying all of chapter 2 that judgment is coming for the false teachers and those who would follow them. In fact, look at it just in chapter 2. Look at verse 1. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there also will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The black darkness is reserved for them. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The black darkness is reserved for them. Look at verse 12. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. The black darkness is reserved for them. Peter has been telling us all along that these false teachers will be condemned. And those who follow them will follow them to destruction and condemnation. These guys do not lead to life. They lead to death, eternal death. So here, this pastoral warning from the Lord through Peter for us, not just for those believers in the first century, but for us as well. Following the false teachers will lead to death. Look at verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Here we see a connection with what we talked about last week, right? Sensuality and arrogance. Sensuality and arrogance traveling together, as always. Only last week, only here in the text this week, they are employing those two vices as instruments to lure other people in. Right? They're using their arrogance, they're using sensuality as an enticement for others. They speak arrogant words of vanity. They are arrogant and boastful. That's a connection with last week, right? They revile, I told you, where they have no knowledge, verse 12. I said, these guys have a lot to say about everything, even things they don't know much about. And you may remember this quote from Jim Shaddix. He said, Peter's point is that the false teachers don't know when to shut up about things they know nothing about. Claiming to be wise, they're really showing themselves to be fools. It's the same, same. This is what they do. They speak arrogant words of vanity. That word vanity means empty, means futility. They have a lot to say, but there's no substance to what they say. It's just a bunch of hot air is the way we would say it today, right? False teachers have a lot to say, and maybe they say it loud, and maybe they stomp their foot, and they scream and shout. But they're not really saying anything in the process. Dick Lucas has a great word here. That seems to fit with Pastor Peter's style in this particular section, he says, of the false teachers. Overblown, with exaggerated claims, dressed in fancy words, these people are like spiritual pufferfish, 
inflating themselves to impress and intimidate. I think that's a great line. Peter says they're wells without water. They're mist driven away by a storm. Dick Lucas says they're spiritual pufferfish, all puffed up with nothing in an effort to impress or to intimidate. Arrogant and empty. That's how the false teachers roll. Arrogant and empty, like pufferfish full of air. That's how they roll. But notice what they are doing in it, what they are doing by their arrogance and vanity. They are enticing. It says in the text, they are enticing. That's an interesting word from the realm of the outdoorsman, the hunter or the fisherman. It's a word that is the image of bait or a lure. What is used as bait or a lure to bring something in. And remember that outdoorsmen, fishermen in particular, are not doing this to play with the fish. They don't put a bait on a hook in order to play with the fish. In fact, Peter has a background in fishing, right? And my guess is that Peter, if he was going to make a living at fishing, was not practicing catch and release. When he caught a fish, somebody was eating that fish, right? That fish was getting consumed. That fish was going to die. And it's the same way with the false teachers. They are not playing catch and release. They are desiring to consume those that they lure in. This is the same word that Peter used last week in verse 14 when he said that the false teachers entice unstable souls. They entice here with their arrogant, empty words. They entice. They're luring people in. That's what the false teachers are doing. They're luring people in like fish. But what's the bait? What are they putting on the hook to lure people in? Pastor Peter says, fleshly desires and sensuality. What, what do they put on the hook? They put on the hook everything that your flesh wants. All those worldly and fleshly desires, that's what they put on the hook to lure you in. One scholar said, grandiose sophistry is the hook, filthy lust is the bait with which these men catch those whom the Lord had delivered or was delivering. Filthy lust is the bait they put on. They are appealing, the false teachers are, to the very thing that the Lord tells us we must fight against. They are inviting you in to the very thing the Lord tells you to run away from. In fact, the Lord tells us to put these things to death. They say, they say, no, 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 those lusts of the flesh, you don't need to put them to death. Don't, don't, don't fight against your lust. Don't fight against your greed. Don't fight against your pride. In fact, lean into it. Come follow me, and you can have all of those things and eternal life. You can have all that the world has to offer. You can have all of those fleshly enjoyments, and you can have eternal life. That's what they say. No need to deprive yourself of any food, of any kind of sex, of any drink, of any money. These guys are living and preaching the exact opposite of what Paul spells out in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, when he says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. That's what he says. But that's exactly what the false teachers are putting on the hook. They're saying, live according to flesh, and you'll live. You'll really live. And Paul says, if you live that way, you will die. But rather... If by the Spirit we are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Where does life really come from? It comes from obedience to the Lord. It comes from a heart that desires to follow Him and trust in Him and love the things He loves and hate the things He hates. And He spelled it out pretty plainly what those things are. But the false teachers put filthy lust on the hook. and People gobble it up. They are doing the very opposite of what Peter urged in 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. 
Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they're surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Do you catch, Peter, what he's saying there in First Peter? He's like, you had enough time for that. The time is over for that way of living. Now you live a whole new way because you're a whole new creature in Christ Jesus. And yet the false teachers are saying, no, 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 keep living that way. It's fun. It's fun. And you can have everything you want and eternal life as well. Pastor Peter is saying, no, 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 that leads to death. That leads to destruction. The false teachers have baited the hook with lust. They baited the hook with greed. And people are gobbling it up. In fact, Peter said, many will follow after them. But who are the ones? Who are the ones who will follow after them? Who are the ones who will see uh, that filthy lust dangling in the water and say, mm, ah, that sounds good. I think I'll have some of that today. And end up with a hook in their lip. Who are the ones? Pastor Peter says, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They're enticing those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Now, there's some debate here and a little difficulty with translation and grammar, but it seems to make the most sense to understand that the ones he's talking about here, the ones who are taking the bait, are those who are recent converts. Right, Basically, recent converts, they, they don't have a lot of time out of the old life. They've kind of got one foot maybe still in the old life, and they're learning how to live as a Christian. And those are the ones that the false teachers are inviting back in to the old way. Douglas Moo takes this stance when he says, It identifies the false teachers' targets as people who had only recently or barely escaped from those who live in error. In fact, the present tense of the participle in this reading suggests that they are still in the process of escaping the entanglements of their past lives. They're still in the process of walking away from that old life and walking in the new life that has been given them in Christ Jesus. Dick Lucas illustrates how attractive the message of the false teacher is to immature believers when he says, their means of trapping the young Christians is enticing, for they speak on those areas of life which the new disciples will find hardest to change. They say, if their way is followed, new Christians need not change at all and can have the best of both worlds. New Christians need not change at all, but they can have the best of both worlds. That sounds familiar. That sounds like some false teaching we hear all around today. No need for change. No need for obedience. No need for growth and godliness. No need for holiness. You can have the best of both worlds. This seems to fit with what we saw last week when Pastor Peter says they entice, they lure unstable souls. So to understand who he's referring to here as immature Christians, unstable souls, recent converts, that, that seems to all fit the same message. Immaturity for the Christian is certainly a problem for recent converts. And recent converts are definitely in danger of false teachers. But I'm convinced that there are many who were converted years ago, decades ago, yet remain as immature as the one who got saved yesterday. Let me say it this way. It is not just the recent convert 
who is immature. There are many of us who have been following Jesus for years who remain immature and therefore in danger of being lured away by the false teachers as they put filthy lust on the hook. We are prone, maybe even, to take that bait. Either way, either way, one of the applications here is to invest heavily in discipleship. To invest heavily in instructing new believers, in training Christians to follow Jesus, in exercising personal spiritual disciplines so that we won't be so vulnerable. So that we won't be so vulnerable. To use Peter's illustration of fishing and the bait, we need to be involved in growing as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can see the hook. Right? So, so that as we're swimming along and we see something, we say, I'm not going to eat that. It's got a huge hook sticking out of it. That, that will only lead to death and destruction. I'll pass on that and look for good food, something that will actually satisfy, right? As we train ourselves in godliness, as we grow as Christians, as we mature in our understanding of the word, we'll also learn to hear the hiss in the voices, right? The old snake that's behind the false teachers who has that hiss, we'll learn to hear that as we learn to hear the voice of the true shepherd. So one of the things we need to do with the end of verse 18 is double down on discipleship, double down on our investment in growing in maturity so that we won't be immature believers prone to be led astray. Look at verse 19. He says, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Here's more of how the false teachers operate. They promise great freedom. But even they are living as slaves themselves. This cry of freedom, oh friends, how many sins are committed? How many sinful habits are ingrained in the name of freedom? How many people are led astray with the false assertion, with the lie from hell that true freedom is found in doing whatever you want? True freedom is found in holding nothing back. True freedom is found in gratifying every desire you have. That's the life you want. That's a lie from hell. In fact, it's the same lie the enemy's been telling from the very beginning. When he started lying to us, this is the lie he told. Ooh, you can have it all. Ooh, God is holding back from you. There's, there's much more to life than he's offering you. Just eat this fruit. You'll see. Look at Genesis chapter 3 if you don't know what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the, both of, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Everything broke after that, right? The enemy in the form of the serpent in the garden was saying the same thing these false teachers are saying. There's more. You'll be happy. Just eat this. You'll be happy. Just drink that. You'll be happy. Listen, that kind of freedom is not freedom at all. 
is slavery. That's slavery to sin. That's slavery to self. That's slavery to the enemy. Remember last week, Peter said that these guys, these false teachers, they can't even look at a woman. They can't even look at a woman without seeing her as a target for seduction and a possible partner for adultery. Do you remember that? They have eyes full of adulteresses. Do you remember that? They don't don't have control of their eyes at all. They cannot look at a woman without lust for her in their hearts. That doesn't sound like freedom. In fact, think this through. You ever talk to someone who's a bona fide drunk? Like cannot get through a day without drinking themselves to drunkenness? Does that sound like freedom? Being completely obligated to that bottle? That doesn't sound like freedom. You ever talk to someone who is addicted to pornography? Like cannot take their phone out, cannot turn their computer on without looking at pornography. Like cannot help themselves but look at pornography. Does that sound like freedom? Think about the workaholic or the gambler who is just driven by greed to have more and more and more. All he thinks about all day is where's the next dollar coming from? That sounds like the American dream, right? But it doesn't sound like freedom. It sounds like slavery to me. Friends, what the false teachers entice you with in the name of freedom is really slavery. What they are offering you as freedom will become your master. Kevin DeYoung said the most interesting thing this week on Twitter. He said, the only thing worse than having none of your dreams come true is having all of them come true and still being unhappy. That, that's what the false teachers are promising. We'll give you all, make all your dreams come true, but the reality is you'll still be unhappy because the things of this world cannot satisfy you. That's what happens when we seek our satisfaction. When we seek wholeness outside of Christ, we're left empty and we're left slaves to our own sin. The false teachers promise freedom that they don't even enjoy, that they don't even live in. They themselves are slaves to the things they're offering you as freedom, slaves of corruption. And then look at this last bit. Like this is, this is the nugget you can take home. This is the principle like in the to-go box. It says, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Like I said, this is the principle you take home. The thing that overcomes you, the thing that masters you, the thing that defeats you, by that you are enslaved. What is that thing? What is that thing that has conquered you? What is that thing that controls you? What is that thing that compels you, that drives you? Is it lust? Is it greed? Is it power? Is it pride? Is it some other thing that the biblical writers always put on the list of vices and not virtues? What is the master over you? Maybe better, who is the master over you? One scholar said, no man can serve two masters, but all men must serve one. That's that's true cannot serve two masters, and you will serve one. The question before us today, who will it be? Who will be the master that we serve? Will it be our sin, ourself, Satan, or will it be the Lord Jesus Christ? Submit to Christ. Pursue him. Fight the flesh. Kill sin. That's the call today. Look at it in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, 
Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? That's a pretty good principle, right? It's exactly what Peter's talking about. You are the slave of the one you obey. Either you obey sin and it results in death, or you obey righteousness and it results in life. Read on. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were, you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I hope that's happened for you. I hope you've been emancipated from slavery to sin and welcomed into slavery to Christ. No man can serve two masters, but every man will serve one. You will either serve sin or you will serve Christ. I hope you've been emancipated from your slavery to sin and welcomed into slavery to Christ. That's a whole different kind of slavery. Read on. He says, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Did you know that that whole thing is the context of verse 23? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wages of sin, what you will earn as you submit yourself to sin is death. But what you will be given in submitting to Christ is life. The gift of grace is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh, friends, that's what we want. That's what will satisfy. Jim Shattuck says, Today, Christianity often is viewed as a restricted life, confined to following a bunch of rules. Believers are seen as being enslaved to someone else's bidding. The banner cry of modern individualists is, live your life the way you want to live it. But all the time, these false freedom fighters are luring people into a life of slavery to sin and bondage to corruption. As people gradually succumb to spiritual and moral decay by their own immoral choices, they ultimately lose even the illusion of freedom and fall into unqualified bondage to their sin. That's why we need a Savior. And there is a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be forgiven, that we might be made new, that we might be whole new creatures in Him. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So for application today, I want us to think for just a minute about where people are getting this kind of false teaching today. Where are you encountering this same kind of false teaching today? And I think there are three areas, three places where you are going to be lured away, where, where the, the hook is dangling. Number one, in the prosperity gospel. In the prosperity gospel. And those who preach the prosperity gospel who entice you with the promise of health and wealth and prosperity. As if that's what your soul ultimately needs. As if what your soul ultimately needs is a lot of money and a good parking place and a fast moving line. They promise you, they entice you with health and wealth and prosperity. And they see Jesus only as a means to get those things. You think Jesus is okay with that? Being seen only as a means to increase your bank account? No, friends, Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the great treasure. He's not a means to get a treasure. He is the treasure. 
And so that's one way you're going to encounter it. In fact, I, I said to the guys early this morning, the biggest churches in America are going to get that today. Gathered together in stadiums, coliseums, they're going to get this. You turn on the TV, you're going to get a lot of that. Beware. The promise, the enticement of health and wealth and prosperity is false teaching. Number two, you see it in the licentiousness of deconstruction. Now, I want to admit that when people talk about deconstructing their faith, there are a lot of different things they can mean. But the primary way I see this happening is people say, oh, I'm just so much happier now that I've taken myself out from under the burden and the expectations of God's word and his church. They talk about the great freedom that they have living just, just me and Jesus. We're just me and Jesus walking this road. I don't have the bondage of organized religion anymore, and I just feel so free. It's deception. It's false teaching to think that freedom is found outside of God's word or outside of his body, that is the church. And what I hear from a lot of people who say, oh, I'm deconstructing, is they are moving toward their own desire and relieving their conscience from the guilt and shame of unrepentant sin. It feels like the, the people I know who have deconstructed or are deconstructing are actually following after the lusts of their own flesh and trying to get away from the proper guilt, proper shame of their unrepentant sin that comes when they put themselves under the word of God and amongst the people of God. That they should be repenting of, rather they're trying to find a way, how can I keep going down this road of sin without repentance and without feeling bad about it? False teachers make a living saying, come with me, I'll show you how to do that. In fact, I'll make a workbook to teach you how you can deconstruct your faith and be able to do all the things that you want to do without any of the constraints of organized religion. You and Jesus can walk the wide road together. Friends, Jesus never invited you to walk the wide road. And he will not walk it with you. But he will call you to repentance. If what they are selling allows you to go on in sin without feeling bad about it, that's got a hook in it. If what they are selling you allows you to go on in your sin without repentance, it's, it's got a hiss. And it comes from the enemy. And then finally, not only do we see this in prosperity gospel preachers, licentiousness of deconstruction, we see it also in easy believism, cheap grace. Man, this is so prevalent. Pray a prayer, walk an aisle, good to go. No talk about discipleship, no talk about holiness, no talk about obedience. Walk an aisle, pray a prayer, maybe get dunked if you want to uh, really, really seal the deal. And then you can live however you want and we'll see you in heaven. Guaranteed. Didn't you read John chapter 6 today? And I'd encourage you to read the rest of John chapter 6. There is great security for those who belong to him. If you really belong to him, he will not let you go. The question is, do you really belong to him? We need a call to real discipleship. The Great Commission doesn't end with baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he goes on to say, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I'm with you always, to the end of the age. Amen. Those are three places you're getting it. 
how do we, how do we make sure we don't buy it? Those are, those are three, three of the hooks that are dangling in the water. How do we make sure we're not eating it? Simple. Ordinary means of grace. Ordinary stuff of the Christian life, right? Spend time in the word of God. Know the truth of God's word so that you will know the lies of the enemy. Be involved in personal spiritual disciplines. Be involved in small group Bible studies. Be involved in corporate gatherings like this. Spend time in the word. Spend time with God's people. And I'm not just talking about Sundays and Wednesdays. Spend time, live your life with God's people. Because somebody will watch you swimming over to that hook and they will say, don't be a fool. That will only lead to your death. Don't eat that. Spend time with his people. The church, the local church, is one of the greatest gifts the Lord has given to us. And we treat it like it's optional and secondary. It is one of the greatest gifts the Lord has given to us. So spend time with his people. Spend time in prayer, communion, and communication with the Lord. That will help you not to buy the enticing lures of the false teachers. Simple discipleship stuff, right? Ordinary means of grace, not extraordinary stuff. Not a magic formula, just the ordinary walk of a Christian disciple. That will keep you on the narrow road that leads to life. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for uh, telling us about the reality of false teachers. Thank you for warning us that there are fishermen out there trying to catch us to kill us. Help us to spot the lies. Help us to see the hook. Help us to hear the hiss as we spend time in your word, that we would be tuned into your voice. That as we spend time with your people, that we would have accountability and encouragement and discipleship. And as we spend time in prayer, that we would commune with you. That we would walk with you. God, we pray for men and women and boys and girls who have they've taken the bait. They've taken the bait and they're They're being reeled in, taken away to destruction. Oh, Lord, rescue them. Only you can. Oh, Lord, show them the emptiness of the world and everything it has to offer and show them the surpassing treasure that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Grant them disgust of their sin. Grant them repentance to turn away from it and grant them faith trust completely in Christ and what he has done on the cross in dying for them and rising again that they might be saved. God, grant repentance and faith and bring salvation as a miracle, as a miracle for your glory, we pray in Christ's name.